0: Open your Bibles up to uh, Matthew chapter 9, Matthew 9. Before we jump into the text there, I did want to just take a moment and uh, certainly to acknowledge the terrible tragedy of this past week, what unspeakable horrors were wrought in a small town in Connecticut. There are many, many families and that are grieving at this time. It's really hard to fathom the level of of evil that broke through. Uh, We know theologically the depravity of the human heart, but it shocks us nonetheless when we see it unveiled in such a terrible, terrible way. I want to take a minute and I just want to pray uh, for those families and uh, I want to pray for the the believers uh, in that community who have an opportunity to make Christ known redemptively to those that are very much hurting. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you that you have not left us to wallow in our sin, to destroy ourselves, O Lord, and the evil that lies within our own hearts. But as Christmas is upon us, and and with Christmas we celebrate the incarnation, the gift of your own Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, who stepped into space and time and himself suffered unspeakable evil and horror. And he did it willingly, and he did it redemptively, and he did it that we might have life in abundance. I pray, O Lord, for those families who are dazed in their pain at this moment father we we don't pretend to try to understand exactly what they're feeling i don't believe we could but father you know uh, exactly what they're feeling and you know exactly what they need and so i pray for your comfort for those who are grieving i pray oh lord for the churches the believers pastors in that community, who will be called upon to try to make sense out of these terrible circumstances, will be called upon to to give an answer for the hope that lies within them. And I pray that they could do so with gentleness and reverence. And, Father, I ask that out of the ashes of this terrible, terrible thing, that the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ could shine forth and that men and women and boys and girls who do not know Christ now would come to know Him as their Savior and King. For it's in His name we pray. Amen. Matthew chapter 9, we're finishing the chapter this morning and as we sort of get our minds thinking about that, I'm going to reflect for a moment upon the um, the issue of decision making decision making you know the 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 ability to make decisions meaningful decisions is I think one of the defining characteristics of what it means to to be an adult as an adult we are called upon to make lots and lots of decisions some of those I have for lunch today or Or what clothes did I put on this morning? Or even am I going to watch football this afternoon or not? They are, in in the grand scheme of things, pretty much inconsequential in nature. But they're nonetheless a decision that one has to make. Occasionally, we have to make significant decisions. Those are decisions that perhaps relate to things like education. Or employment opportunities. Or even housing decisions. Those are significant decisions. They're less frequent and they're certainly more important. And then there are a few places in life in which we are called upon to make a life-changing decision. Things like that might be perhaps the whole question of marriage. Certainly that changes a person's life. Issues of childbearing are life-changing kinds of questions. Relocation can be a life-changing decision. And for those of us who are believers, we, we recognize there's sort of a spiritual component in all of those. Uh, even the inconsequential ones, I guess, have, you know, they have a, a spiritual component to them, but, but they're decisions that are made all the time by people, whether they know Christ redemptively or not. They're just decisions that, it, that we make and are called upon to make as adults. There are, however, some decisions, some questions that we have to address that are, that are clearly spiritual in nature. And they have consequences that, that not only play into this life, but into the life to come. And this morning, I want to look with you at, at four questions of that kind of significant nature. Four questions of a very, very significant nature. And and how you answer these questions will have a tremendous impact upon you, here and now, and for eternity. So there are some important questions I want to look at this morning. The sermon this morning is somewhat introspective. It's designed to be somewhat introspective. That is that, that is these questions no one else can answer for you. These are questions you need to answer for yourself. And so as we, as we work through the text together and these questions I think naturally arise from the passage that we'll be looking at beginning in verse 27. I ask you to jot them down. Think about them. The first question is this. It begins in verse 27, and it's the question, Who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? Now, from a, from a background point of view, the Old Testament speaks a lot about the coming Messiah. All over the Old Testament, there are, there are prophecies of that coming one. and In fact, uh, that will be our Christmas message next week. Sunday, we will be looking at those prophecies that build to the Incarnation. But all over that Old Testament, there speak of the coming one, and they speak of his coming kingdom. And that coming kingdom, we're, we're told by the prophets of the Old Testament, is going to be a, a place of, of incredible blessing. Unseen in the world around us a world that is broken and bent and twisted by sin it will be a time and a place of great prosperity we're told it will be a time and a place in which which the evils of this life will be for a large part banished there is a prophecy in particular that i want to just bring your attention to because it kind of stands out as a summary statement of that coming kingdom. It appears for us in Isaiah's writings, chapter 35 and verses 5 and 6, and I'll just read them to you. The prophet Isaiah writes there about those coming days. He says, then the eyes of the blind will be opened and the ears of the deaf will be unstopped. Then the lame will leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute will shout for joy. For waters will break forth in the wilderness and streams in the araba, or desert. Matthew, in the, in the uh, composing of his gospel here, has a, has a purpose in mind. And, and that purpose is to present Jesus as the great messianic king long foretold of the old testament and he's writing to first and foremost a a jewish audience and in chapters eight and nine and we've said this over and over and over again but in chapters eight and nine matthew pulls together a a series of of miracles that jesus does and he brings them together in order to provide sufficient evidence that jesus is the long foreseen messiah That when Jesus walked this earth and preached that the kingdom of heaven was at hand, it was at hand in the person of the king himself. And he gave repeatedly a glimpse into his coming kingdom, peeling back the curtain, as it were, and allowing us to glimpse in. And he does that through these incredible miracles. He shows these miracles to people because by seeing these miracles, you're glimpsing what is to come, what he alone can bring. They are authenticating miracles of Messiah's ministry. And here at the end of chapter 9, we're going to pick up the last two in the series, two of them that are given here. Now, taking a look at verse 27 Matthew says as Jesus went on from there two blind men followed him crying out have mercy on us son of david previously we learned about jesus miracles in the in the raising of the of the deceased daughter of the synagogue official and and the healing of the woman who was in this uh, place of defilement because of her 12 years of continual bleeding and that jesus healed both of those people matthew says now after that he he moves on from there but but as he moves on there's a crowd that's kind of following him and that's certainly to be expected i mean after all when someone can do these kinds of things that tends to draw a crowd right so they are following him along here and, and the idea is that, that in this crowd there are these two blind men following along and they are, they are very persistent guys. The Greek indicates to us that they are they are continually yelling out after him. Have mercy on us, son of David. Shh. But they won't be quiet. They are just continuing to, to call out to him from the crowd. blind men. Blindness was a very common problem in the ancient world. There are a lot of causes for that blindness. Certainly poor sanitation is one of them. Just basically bad sanitation that, that led to, to highly infectious eye diseases that were frequently spread by flies. The flies would land on the eyes of those who were infected and, and then they would go to someone else. And particularly children were susceptible as they slept to, to flies landing on them and, and transmitting these highly infectious eye diseases. There are other certainly causes for, for eye problems of that day, injury being one of them. Certainly cataracts would be another a gonorrhea was a real problem, that led to blindness. And you add into that blowing sand and the intense glare of the Palestine sun without benefit of sunglasses. And, and all of these factors contribute to the problem of blindness. It was not rare in those days. So there are these two men here, these two blind men, and they are, they are following after Jesus. And they are yelling at him. Have mercy on us. Son of David. Now, son of David is an interesting expression. Son of David. It is a messianic title. It is a direct reference to the long promised one. It actually goes back into Second Samuel chapter 7, in particular in verse 16, where God promises to David, that, that, that first great king of Israel, that his house and his kingdom shall endure forever before me, God says, and your throne shall be established forever, what we call the Davidic covenant. And all of David's offspring had had that right to the throne. And, and there would be an ultimate son born, who would be the, the greater son of David, who would be the long-foreseen uh, Messiah. And these blind men are, are calling Jesus that one. Son of David. It's really interesting to me because... What it indicates is that at least for a few people, there is a recognition of who Jesus really is. There's a there's a recognition that that he descends from the royal house. There's a recognition that 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 this one, this this Galilean carpenter from Nazareth, who's now taken up residence in Capernaum, is is from the house of David. He he has royal blood in his veins and he's not just any old son of David. He is the son of David, the long-promised son of David. There's a, there's a growing consciousness that, that he is the Messiah. Now, let me just insert here sort of editorial, in an editorial way, that this is significant. And it's significant because because some will say that that the reason that the nation of Israel did not receive Jesus as their Messiah was because they didn't really know who he was. But that's not true. That's not true. The the gospel records will not allow that sort of idea to, to stand up. They did know who he was. And actually, that's the problem. They knew who he was. They knew he was Messiah. But it wasn't the Messiah they were looking for. His his entrance requirements into his kingdom were too high. They were not willing to pay the price. So it wasn't a lack of knowledge on their part. It was it was a lack of willingness to humble their hearts before him and to receive him as their king. And beloved, that's true today. Today. When people are introduced to Jesus today and they refuse him, it's not because they don't understand who he is. It's actually because they do understand who he is, but they're not willing to pay the price. The son of David. It's also interesting to me as I just think on this that. Here are these two blind men, and they're, and they're calling out with this, this very orthodox confession of faith. Have mercy on us, son of David. And, and that statement, have mercy on us, is, is a statement that's clearly calling out for a miracle. They've never seen any of his miracles. Do you ever think about that? They're calling out for him to do something for them that they have never seen him do. The only way they could know about him and his power is by how? Somebody had to tell them. They were reliant upon the testimony of the word of witnesses to who he is and what he has done. Kind of like you and I. I have never seen Jesus in the flesh doing a miracle, and neither have you. I am entirely dependent upon the eyewitness testimonies of those who were there who saw it and wrote it down for me. It's called the Bible. It's called the Gospels. And so we fall into the same basic situation as these blind men. We are calling out for Jesus to do something for us that we've never seen him do. I think we can say rightly here that these blind men saw better than many whose physical sight was 20-20 in that day. Don't you think? They're pestering him. Verse 28. Jesus has been ignoring them along the way here. But verse 28, when they entered the house, the blind men came up to him and Jesus said to them, Do you believe that I am able to do this? They said to him, yes, Lord. How strange. How strange for him to wait until he gets into the house to address them. Why doesn't he do something for them when they're out there with the crowds? And what he says next, of course, makes it all the much more confusing when he tells them, don't tell anybody. I think the answer to this is that, that basically Jesus is trying to keep a lid on things. The crowds are already swelling. And he, and he does not want th- this thing to run out of control. For the, for the miraculous to overcome the message of redemption that he has. He doesn't want to, uh, to prematurely alarm the Roman authorities, with this one who is a king that they might view as a a threat to their rule. And so he waits until they get into the house, and then he addresses them. And it's interesting what he says to them, verse 28. Do you believe that I am able to do this? Interesting, he doesn't ask them what they want. He asks them what they believe. He doesn't ask them what they want. He asks them, what do you believe? Do you believe that I have the faith to heal you? Do you really believe that I am the son of David? That's the question. You're calling to me and calling me son of David. Do you really believe that? In all that it means. In all of its Old Testament fullness. They said to him, yes, Lord. Yes, Lord. Verse 29, he touched their eyes. He touched their eyes saying, it shall be done to you according to your faith. And their eyes were opened. Incredible act of compassion. Compassion. An amazing act of messianic power. Jesus touches their eyes and the blindness is gone. It's gone. It shall be done to you according to your faith. Not in proportion to your faith. You know, you believe a little, you get healed a little, that kind of thing. But as you believe, since you believe, your request is granted. You believe that I'm the king? Your rest is granted. It's a kingly kind of thing to do. And then I said, it gets a little strange here. Verse 30, and then Jesus sternly warned them, see to it that no one knows about this. Definitely not the strategy you and I would take. Definitely not. We would put it on the internet. Right? Pay Google so all the search engines find it. He sternly, he said, sternly warned them. Very serious about this. See to it that no one knows. Verse 31 they went out and spread the news about him throughout all that land. Amazing. Their faith was strong. Their obedience was eh, kind of sketch, right? Yeah. Strong faith, but not so good in the obedience department. Now, obviously, Jesus knew that that he couldn't keep a lid on this thing forever, right? I mean, you got two blind men. Then they go home. The guy's wife is going to say, you know, hey, what you been doing today? (laughs) Yeah, not much, you know. Somebody's going to figure out that they can see. Certainly their close family, their friends, their associates. It's not going to take forever for this news to begin to filter out. So it's not that Jesus somehow expects this never to get out. That's not the point. Is he just doesn't want it to go out in this, in this spectacular fashion that will do nothing but incite the crowds. And incite the crowds not to believe. But just whip them up into a frenzy and end up derailing the whole messianic mission. We've encountered this before. But they, they go out and they tell everybody. It's interesting here how Matthew goes on from this. He just sort of leaves that there and moves on. He says, as they were going out, and uh, as one commentator said, it's, You get the idea here, it's almost like a a doctor's waiting room, right? You know, next, one patient goes out, next next patient comes in. As they were going out, a a mute, that's a person who can't speak, a mute, demon-possessed man is brought in. What are you here for? That's a trick question, right? Sometimes these things take a little while to work their way out. Yeah. And <laughs> some friends bring in a, a, a mute man, a man who cannot speak, who is demon-possessed. And it's, it's interesting here because verse 33, after the demon is cast out, the mute man spoke. What's interesting to me is, is that Matthew sort of narrates this for us in a very compressed fashion. The guy can't speak. Why can't he speak? He's demon possessed. As soon as the demon is cast out, the man's able to speak. Boom! It's almost like this is a this is just a transition. This is a bridge. Because what Matthew really wants to get at is the reaction to the miracle. And by the reaction to this miracle, he's getting at the reaction to all the miracles that precede this. In verse 33, and the crowds were, what? Amazed. The crowds were amazed. and, And we're saying, nothing like this has ever been seen in Israel. And by extension, if nothing like this has ever been seen in Israel, among God's chosen people, then... Nothing like it has ever been seen anywhere. If God would not do this to it for his chosen people, then it's not been done anywhere. They're amazed. They're amazed by this miracle and by extension, they're amazed by all the other miracles that have gone before. In today's vernacular, they are blown away, right? They're blown away. And what they've seen but verse 34 contrast the pharisees were saying he casts out the demons by the ruler of the demons it's a dramatic contrast in response dramatic contrast in response It's obvious that a miracle has occurred. Nobody is disputing that. Even the Pharisees, if they could dispute the miracle, they would dispute the miracle, but they can't, so they don't. Instead, they just offer their own explanation for it. And the logic of their explanation goes something like this. They are sure that their approach to God is the correct one and that Jesus' approach to God is the wrong one. It is obvious that he has done a miracle, and because he has done a miracle, yet he is a, he is a sinner and, and his approach to God is all wrong. Therefore, it's, he could only have done this miracle by being in league with the evil one. Sort of an impeccable logic in a perverse sort of way. They can't resort, uh, refute the genuineness of the miracle. Instead, what they do is they just turn around and they, they attack the character of the person who does the miracle. The source of the power behind the miracle. This hostility, by the way, is is just continuing to grow and to grow and to grow. And, and we'll turn over a couple of chapters here in a few years. No, just kidding. And... Uh, in a while here, and we'll get to chapter twelve, and we'll arrive at the hinge piece in the book with what is called the unpardonable sin, right? Where the break becomes irreparable. But it's all here; it's all building. So this this kind of takes me back to our opening question here: Who is Jesus? And, and 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 basically, Matthew provides us with, with three. Possibilities. Son of David. Son of David, that is, that is Messiah, that is the long promised one. Or, or some sort of amazing healer. Or a satanic fraud. Those are the choices he gives us. And he's asking us, implicitly asking us, He's asking you to make a decision. Who is he? Who do you say that I am? What do you believe about me? What do you believe about me? Now, if you, you believe that I'm Messiah, it doesn't end there. If you believe that I am Messiah in in its fullest sense of the word, it doesn't end there with you. Actually, what happens now is, is there are some more questions that you need to ask or need to be asked of you and you need to answer. Jesus is on a mission to seek and to save the lost. And the next three questions that are, that are going to come out of this text are, are going to basically revolve around the issue of will you join him on that mission? If you have concluded by faith that he is the son of David, the Messiah, the promised one, the savior of the world, the redeemer of those who receive him by faith, if that's your conclusion about him, then, then you need to join his mission. He's going to ask you, will you do that? That takes us to the second question. The first is, who is Jesus? The the second question, and really comes out of verses 35 and 36, and the second question is this, do you care? Do you care? I'll show you what I mean by that. Verse 35, Jesus was going through all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every kind of disease and every kind of sickness. Seeing the people, he felt compassion for them because they were distressed and dispirited like sheep without a shepherd. Now, verse 35 is, has very, very similar language to, to chapter 4. You can just go back there and verify this with me. Chapter 4 and verse 23. Where it says, chapter 4, verse 23, Jesus was going throughout all Galilee teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every kind of disease and every kind of sickness among the people. So we have two very similar statements, one in chapter 4, verse 23, and one here now in chapter 9 and verse 35. And they act like bookends, bookends. And, they, and they, they provide a beginning and an end to a significant segment of this gospel. That significant segment begins in chapter 5 with the Sermon on the Mount, runs through chapter 7, right? Where we have Jesus at first, uh, according to Matthew, Jesus' first big public address as king. And then it's followed up in chapters 8 and 9 with these authenticating miracles. And then Matthew brings it to a close. This is Matthew's account of Jesus' great Galilean ministry, about 18 months of public ministry up and around the Sea of Galilee. A ministry characterized by teaching and preaching the gospel of the kingdom and performing all kinds of amazing signs as evidence that he is who he claimed to be. Verse 36, Matthew says, seeing the people. Seeing the people, and he has seen the people, hasn't he? He feels compassion for them. Matthew is telling us that the the motive behind Jesus' ministry here is one of compassion. It is is compassion towards his countrymen that, that is moving him. Now, this is not just this is not simply human pity. There's not just simply a human emotion of, of pity, but this is a this is an idea of divine compassion. For his chosen people. That which moves the hand of God. For his chosen people. Jesus has this kind of compassion. Why? Verse 36, why? Because the people were distressed and, and dispirited like sheep without a shepherd. What a vivid image. What a vivid image. Matthew says that that the people of, of Israel here are, are like sheep left defenseless and vulnerable. They are, they are sheep subject to to attack. They are are sheep without anyone to lead them into into green pastures or or clean drinking waters or or care for them if they were to fall and, and become hurt or try to wander off or any of those things. No one to care for them. No one to provide their immediate and essential needs. Sheep without a shepherd. The Old Testament speaks of God's people under the metaphor of sheep in a number of places. Speaks of us in the New Testament, you and I, as sheep as well. We're probably not all that keen on that that kind of a a name for us, right? Or that kind of illustration. Particularly in our culture. But God says that's how we are. We're, We're like sheep. We are vulnerable. We are defenseless. We're dumb. Put it in the vernacular. We'll eat anything, whether it's good for us or not. We desperately need someone to care for us. To these people, back here in verse 36, to these people, they are distressed, they are, they are dispirited. The answer for them is the gospel of the kingdom. It needs to be preached to them. You see that in verse 38. The answer to the, to the shepherdless sheep is to bring them the message of redemption. To bring them the message of redemption. That's the same today. That's what people need. They need the message of redemption. They, they need to, to know that God loved them enough to send his own son into the world. To, to carry to that cross their guilt and sin. And if they will if they will give up on their own attempts at being made right before Him, at living life independent of Him, and will humble their heart and, and repent and turn away from their sin and turn to God in Christ. That God the Father will count his son's death. On their behalf. He will transfer all of their guilt. To his own son Jesus Christ. Who died. And rose again. And they will be free. They will be free. People need the gospel of the kingdom. The sheep. Need to hear the message. And as I reflect upon this and have have been reflecting upon this, uh, I'm forced to ask myself a question. And the question that, that comes to me is the question of, do I care? Do I care about those around me who are hurting? Jesus is moved with compassion here, it says. Not just pity, not just, wow, man, they got it hard, huh? Yeah, let's go get a Starbucks. Moved. Deep part of his being. I have to ask myself, am I moved? Do I really care about the people around me that are, that are hurting? Do I care about people whose lives have been mangled by sin? People who are, who are trapped, who are, who are caught, who are, who are trying to get through life day to day, just trying to make it to tomorrow. Does it touch my heart at all? Do I really care? It's an important question to ask. It's not one that's answered quickly or lightly. But it's an important question because because the answer to that question predicts my answers to the next two questions. Depending how I answer that question, it will predict how I will answer the next two. And that takes me to that third question: Will you pray? Will you pray? Who is Jesus? Do you care? Third question: Will you pray? Will you pray? Verse 37, then he, that is Jesus, says to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Therefore, beseech the Lord of the harvest to send out workers into his harvest. Jesus changes images here. It goes from sheep without a shepherd now to a harvest field. These are, these people are, he speaks of his, of of the nation like a great harvest that is ready to be brought in. It is ripe. What are they ripe for? They are ripe for the message of the gospel of the kingdom. And that's what it means to go into the harvest field. I think sometimes we, we mistake this as the idea that what they're ready for is a great revival and many, many, many will come to faith in Jesus Christ. And that can't be true because we know the outcome doesn't turn out like that. The harvest means that they are ready to hear the message. They're ready to hear it. different than the Pharisees, right? The Pharisees see the the multitudes, the masses like chaff, ready to be burned in the fires of hell. They could care less. Jesus sees the nation as people without a shepherd, desperately in need of a message, a, a great harvest field into which the workers must go and proclaim that message. They must. When I was a teenager... I worked for a few summers for a local dairy farm. And uh, my job was to, along with many others, was to bring in the hay. The uh, season for hay is relatively short in New England. And so when the fields come ready to be harvested, that they, it needs to be cut and it needs to be baled and it needs to be stacked and it needs to be brought into the barns. And it needs to be done quickly because if it rains on the hay, it's ruined. So it's a lot of work and it takes a lot of people. And so this local dairy farm would, would hire a bunch of us to, to go out and do that. And it was kind of an all hands on deck approach. The farm was, was owned by a brother and sister. And, and I think he was the youngest and I think he was 68 at the time. His sister was in her 70s, and then there was a there was an aunt or something like that in her 80s. That's it. There was only the three of them. They'd all be out there, you know, like driving the tractor and making this thing happen. It's all hands on deck. The fields are ready to be harvested in this case. The hay is ready to be brought in. So Jesus is using this kind of an agricultural illustration, and, and he's doing it to, communic- to communicate urgency. That's the point of all of this is there's urgency, urgency for workers to join him in the harvest field while there is still time. Now, contextually, his public ministry is going to soon be coming to an end. And he and he needs and desires to have this gospel message presented all through the nation of Israel. Chapter 10, by the way, records the the calling of what? The 12 disciples. Records the calling calling of the 12 disciples and and their call to help him in that proclamation. He calls them to come alongside him and, and help him in that proclamation. So Jesus is saying, listen, my public ministry is soon coming to an end. There's still a lot of people who need to hear this message. We have got to get it out. We've got to get it out. Now fast forward a couple thousand years. Here we are. The return of Christ could come at any time. Is that true? And when Christ returns, it brings about what the Bible calls the end of this age. The end of this age. And there are many, many, many people who have still not heard the gospel of the kingdom. And so it needs to be all hands on deck. There needs to be a sense of urgency to bring this message. And everybody has a part to play. Everybody. Verse 38. Therefore, Listen, there's a lot of people who need to hear, but there aren't enough people yet out there telling them, so therefore do something about it. Pray. Pray. Beseech. Beg with God, the Lord of the harvest, the owner of the harvest field, to to send out workers into his harvest field. We need to pray with a sense of urgency. We need to pray that, that God will impel workers who share the same kind of compassionate heart that he has out into the world to spread the gospel. Beloved, it's a work that everybody can do. Everybody can do it. Young and old can participate. This is front Line ministry pray pray that god would would raise up and send out people from this church pray that that god would raise up and send out people from churches that are of a like precious faith as ours out into the harvest fields to plant churches to translate the scriptures. To train up local leadership. To, to make disciples among the nations. Pray. It's hard work. It's hard work. Beseech him, he says. This is not the, the quick mumbled prayer. This is the hard work kind of prayer. But it's God's ordained means by by which each of us can participate in the worldwide mission. For God is still this day, through Christ, reaching and saving the lost. Who is Jesus? Do you care about the world? If you do, will you pray? And the fourth and final question is one that is maybe not initially obvious from the text, but I I think it's presupposed by the call to pray. And it's this. Are you willing to go? Are you willing to go? We're, we're to pray that God would raise people up. So, so I think the the implicit question then lies in this is, as you are praying, are you willing to consider that maybe you are the answer to that prayer? Let me make it personal. Can I do that? Let's make it personal. I, I, I'm going to assume that you are, that you do care. That you know Christ, that you care about the lost, and that you are willing to pray. And that you are willing to pray that God would raise up the next church planting team from within this fellowship. I'm going to assume that you're willing to do that. I'm also going to assume that that you are willing to, to pray that God would raise up additional international workers to follow into the long line of those that have gone before them. And most recently, of course, the wines and promise that God would raise up others within this fellowship to to go forth to the far corners of of the harvest field and to bring the message of the gospel of the kingdom. I'm going to assume you're willing to pray for that. I'm going to even be so bold as to assume that you are willing to give sacrificially, financially, in order to see that happen. And I think I'm safe in these because this is an incredibly faithful congregation. God has and is doing an amazing work of grace among us. So I think these are reasonably safe assumptions. But here's the big question. Are you willing to go? Are you willing to go? I know you're willing to pray. I know you're willing to give. Are you willing to go? Are you willing to consider the possibility that God might call you to go and to serve alongside our brother and sister? That's it. This is where the train stops and I get out, right? Hey, these these twelve men? Like they had jobs, you know what? They had jobs. They had houses. They had families. Likely they had children. And they went. And they went. I'm not saying that God is calling you. I'm not a prophet or the son of a prophet. Right? Let's settle that right now. I'm not even a fig picker. Right? Only Amos would understand that. So I'm not trying to say, you know, I'm not being Holy Spirit here. I'm just saying to you, are you willing to even be open to that possibility? I told you, these questions, are, these questions are transformational. But you know, they follow each other. See how that works? Here's all the first one on who is Jesus. When you, when you by faith, become convinced that he is who he is, then it naturally flows from there. They're like dominoes. You know, where you knock one and ding, 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 down they go. It just sort of moves you along. If you find yourself here at the end of the year, and, and maybe you know the, there's like a missing domino, like so "dung dung stop" in your life. Now I understand that. it has been a dry spell for me, but I think that the answer to it is to circle back to question one again. It's back, it's like back to the beginning. Who is Jesus? Get a good look at him. Be persuaded to the depth of your being as to who he really is. And then the other questions, they just sort of begin to fall into place. Now, not everybody goes. Everybody prays. Let me pray. Father, thank you for this text. And thank you for the opportunity through it to do a little bit of the end-of-the-year self-evaluation. Father, we confess that we are prone to wander, prone to leave the one we love. Our faith is so much up and down, O oh Lord. How we can seem to grow cold, calloused towards others, even towards you. Our Father, I thank you that, that our assurance of the reality that we are children of God doesn't depend upon our grip on you, but upon yours on us. And so, our Father, draw us to yourself even now. Pull us closer, as it were, Lord, just in a gigantic, affectionate Hug. Melt our hard hearts. Reignite the flame and the passion for those things that are most important to you. You sent your own son into this world seeking to save the lost. May you use us in some small corner of the harvest field.